John chapter 4. We're moving from John 3 to John 4 this morning. We're looking at one of the most famous conversations, I think, in the whole Bible. And you got a good sense of that as Hunter read the scripture earlier. There's a back and forth. John is filled with conversations, and this is one of the best-known conversations. Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman as he sits at this well. And I think that when we come to this conversation, Jesus talking to the woman of Samaria, I think that John wants us to read this conversation in light of a previous conversation that Jesus had with a guy named Nicodemus. I think that John wants his readers, this is in your notes, to note or to see the differences in the similarities between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And I'm just going to put some of these on the screen for you to think about. Nicodemus is named in the story. We know his name. We don't know the Samaritan woman's name. Uh, Nicodemus was Jew. She was a Samaritan. Nicodemus was male. She was female. Nicodemus, everyone thought of him as a very moral person. Everyone knew that this woman was very immoral. Nicodemus had status. She had none. Nicodemus was educated. She was not. Nicodemus was respected. She was not respected. She was looked down upon. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. This woman was found by Jesus at noon. And on the surface, you look at these two characters and you say, this is the opposite end of the social spectrum. These two people could not be more different. Jesus talking with Nicodemus and Jesus talking with this woman. But if you really stop and think about it, they're not all that different. There's things about these two that are, are very, very similar. And this is where we find common ground with these two. Both of them thought they were okay. They both thought they were okay. I mean, that's why Nicodemus, when Jesus said, you must be born again, he didn't understand that. He thought his morality was enough to, to earn his way with God. And when you listen to this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, talk to Jesus, she thought she was a worshiper. We worship here, you worship there, I'm a spiritual person, you're a spiritual person. They both pretty much thought that they were okay. They both thought they knew a lot of things. Turns out they didn't know much but Nicodemus came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, we know. And he just starts in with that. The woman, towards the end of the conversation, looks at Jesus and says, I know. And John is drawing these links. He's saying both of these people come to Jesus, enter a conversation with Jesus, and they think they know a lot of stuff. They both try to take Jesus literally. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, and Nicodemus says, well, you mean like enter the womb again? How's that going to work? And Jesus says to the woman, I could give you living water. And she looks around and says, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me living water? They both sort of missed the point initially in trying to take Jesus literally. And most importantly, they're both lost. They're both lost. Nicodemus lost in his self-righteous morality thinking that as a Pharisee, he could earn his way with God. The Samaritan woman, lost in her sort of disconnected spirituality and her unrepentant sin, both of them talking with Jesus, both of them lost. There's differences and there's similarities, and somewhere in between all of that, I think you can find yourself in these stories. There's an interesting detail in verse 4. Look at John 4, 4. It says he had to pass through Samaria. 
Scholars debate this. What is the reason he had to pass through? Some say it's just a matter of geography. Others say there was some sort of divine necessity here. And I'll put a map on the screen just to sort of show you the lay of the land. Jesus Jesus starts out down in Judea in the south. You see Samaria is just the territory north. And the text says he's headed to Galilee further up in the north. So some scholars look at this and they say the easiest route between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north is just to cut straight through Samaria. There was an easy road. It was not difficult travel. Many, many people do this. It was a geographic necessity. He was here. He was going here. He had to pass through this area. Other scholars look at it and they say, no, something else is going on here. They come to this conclusion because they know that in Jesus' day, many, many Jews wanted nothing to do with, with the Samaritans or even Samaria itself. So this would be like you get ready to drive to Lubbock for something exciting that's going to happen in Lubbock. I don't know, maybe there's going to be a parade in a couple weeks or something. You're going up to Lubbock, you're getting excited, and you say, you know what? I've always hated Lamisa. I don't like Lamisa. I don't want to go that way. I'm going to go this way. A little bit longer to go around through Andrews and Seminole, but those people in Lamisa are the worst, and I don't want anything to do with them, so I'm going, to, I'm going to take the long route around. And people did this. People didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans, so many of them would cut over the Jordan River into Perea, up through the Decapolis, and then cross back over into Galilee. This was very, very common. And this is why some scholars look at this and they say, Did he have to pass through? Not really, because a lot of people didn't. A lot of people cut around and took the long route, and they say Jesus had to pass through this area, not because that's where the road went. There were other roads. There were other other paths. Jesus had to pass through this area because he had a meeting with this woman. She didn't know about it, but Jesus knew about it, and he had to go this way so that he could talk with this Samaritan woman. Who were the Samaritans? Very simply, the Samaritans were the descendants of the conquered northern kingdom of Israel and the pagans who were forcibly resettled in the land by Assyria. So here's what happened. 722 B.C., the Assyrian army marches on the northern kingdom of Israel. They conquer the capital city of Samaria. They take the the most prosperous, most educated, most talented people in the land, and they deport them into Assyria. It's like a brain drain. We're going to take all the talent, we're going to move it out, and then we've conquered these other peoples over here. We're going to take their best of the best and move them in, and with your riffraff and this other best of the best from some other country, we're going to sort of destabilize the whole region. It's going to be easier to control you guys. And so that's what happened. The best of the best get shipped out. Other pagan peoples get brought in, and the Jews over time intermarry with these pagan peoples. Bloodlines mix, and more importantly, religions mix. Israel already had a hard time with with idols and worshiping all the other gods around them. This just made it worse. And the Jews, especially the Jews down south in Judea, they knew this. And they looked up to their neighbors to their north, their cousins to the north, the Samaritans. And I'm just going to be honest. What they saw was a bunch of half-breed pagan, worthless people. They've sold out. They've married with the enemy, right? They've, they've intermarried with those that are not 
Jewish. They've mixed faith with those who don't worship Yahweh. They are traitors, and they're no longer one of us. Jesus wanted to talk with one of those worthless, half-breed pagans. He didn't see her as a throwaway person. He saw her as somebody of, of value, somebody of, of worth, somebody that he had to go this way so that he could talk with this woman. And when he talks with her, he actually lets her in on a secret. It's something that people asked him throughout his ministry, and he either dodged it or he just sort of ignored the question. But he lets this woman in on the secret that he is the Messiah. That's the big idea of the passage. Very, very simple. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And of all the people that wanted to know, are you him or not, and he doesn't tell them, he tells this woman in Samaria, I know that the Christ is coming and he's going to teach us all things. I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus looks at her and he says, I'm him. Right? Christ comes from the, the Greek word. Messiah comes from the Hebrew word. They mean the exact same thing. Literally, it means the anointed one. Biblically, in the Old Testament, it points to the promised one that God would send to save his people. And to all the people who wanted to know, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah or not, he looks at this woman, one-on-one -on -one conversation at a well in Samaria, and he says to her, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. It all starts with this, this trip, this trip traveling through Samaria. I want you to look at verse 6. Verse 6 is something we could easily pass over. We could talk about the big idea, but I want you to see this. Verse 6. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, wearied, circle the word wearied, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, it was about noon. So he's wearied. And in verse 7, he asks this woman for a drink, presumably because he's thirsty. He's weary, and he's thirsty. And if you keep going in verse 8, it says the disciples went into the city to buy food, presumably because he was hungry. Just take this in, in the context of John, and don't pass over this. We have been introduced to Jesus in the first couple of chapters as the Word of God, eternal with the Father from eternity past, the one who created everything. Nothing, John says, was created that was not created by the Word of God. The Word created it all. He's the one that knows the hearts of human beings. Remember the, the debate about Jesus and the temple and clearing the temple, and it says these people saw signs and they believed, but Jesus did not believe in them because he knew what was in man. He knew their hearts. Jesus is the one who can take water and turn it into wine effortlessly. It's not difficult. He's the Word, equal with the Father. And all of a sudden, we just kind of read over this and we don't pay a lot of attention to it. John says, that same guy I've been telling you about, he's weary, he's tired, he's thirsty, and he's hungry. He's tired, 
he's thirsty, and he's hungry. Sometimes we use these words and we use them in a not literal way, more of a figurative way. And let me explain to you what I mean. I'll give you one good example. Some of you know there was a basketball game last night. Texas Tech won a basketball game. It was very, very exciting. Lots of red in the room this morning. I didn't have any red in my closet, so I just went with blue. But Texas Tech wins this game. Everybody's very, very excited. I told you last week I was afraid a Raider power chant was going to break out when Hunter did that little thing. I don't know what that thing was he did up here. I think it was dancing. I'm not sure. I think it was an effort at dancing. I thought the chant might break out. Uh, I thought last night when I watched the game, I thought, you know, people are going to come in. They're going to want to put their regular offering in the box, and they're going to want to take a special offering for the Matt Mooney statue that they're going to build in Lubbock. They're going to want to give over and above for that. So people are excited, and you watch the game, and they played great defense, and you see guys getting hurt going to the locker room and coming back out and begging the coach to put them back in the game. And the announcers, it's obvious they don't watch any games from Lubbock all season long because they can't pronounce the names right. And who is this guy? Where did he come from? And they, they don't know what's going on. And they keep talking about, man, this team is hungry. They're hungry. Now look, I bet you could go to the Chinese buffet with the men's basketball team, and I bet they could put the food away, right? I bet these guys could eat. But that's not what they mean. What they mean is they want something really, really bad. And they're dialed in with their coach, and they're excited, and they're energetic. These guys are hungry. Or we could even use one of our other words. We could use weary or tired. We could say, they're tired of the old results, We don't mean physically that they're tired. We just mean they want something different. So sometimes we use these words, we use them figuratively. I just want you to understand how basely literal John means this. It's not a figurative sort of part of speech. He's not trying to make some sort of spiritual point. He's just telling you something very, very basic about Jesus the Messiah. He was weary, he was tired, and he was thirsty, and he was hungry. You know what it's like to be tired. I thought this week, when was the last time I was just dead tired? Made me think of our Kenya team that just came back. If you've ever made that trip, you know you travel all the way around the world, your clock is all messed up, and you finally, by the end of the mission trip, you get used to Kenya time. Then you get on a plane and you travel all the way back around the world. You usually get home, our our teams usually get home on a Saturday. And then you wake up and you come to church Sunday. Can't skip church after a mission trip, so you got to go to church. Come to church. You're feeling pretty good. You go eat lunch. And then about 1, 2 o'clock, something happens to you. And you just think, I'm going to die. Like, this is it. This is the end of me right now. I'm not going to make it. I'm so tired. I'm weary. And John is talking about Jesus like that. He says he was weary. He was tired. He says he was thirsty. Jesus was thirsty. Some of you who have kids know how urgent thirst can be. And what I'm thinking about is when you put your kids or your grandkids to bed. And they've gone 12 hours without drinking anything. And you tuck them in and you flip the light off. And when the light goes off, what happens? I'm thirsty. 
I need a drink, Dad, Dad, please, Dad. I'm dying of thirst, Dad. I'm not going to make it through the night. I'm so thirsty. John says about Jesus, he's thirsty. He needed a drink. He was hungry. Some of you know what it's like to be hungry because you're hungry right now. And you're hoping your neighbor doesn't hear your belly rumbling during the sermon. I hope they don't hear me growling. You can taste the chips and queso already. You're thinking about it. It's just making you more hungry. Like these very human things. To be tired. To be thirsty. To be hungry. And John says Jesus experienced all of those things. Just a little bit of church history before we move on. In the early church, there was a false teaching called docetism. Docetism. It comes from the Greek word that means to seem or to appear. And the docetists said, Jesus was basically, for lack of a better term, they wouldn't have said it this way, but you'll understand, Superman. He was Superman. He looked like one of us on the outside, but he really wasn't one of us at all. It looked like he got hungry, but he really didn't get hungry because he's God. He's the Word. It looked like he needed a drink of water, but he didn't really need that because he's God. It looked like he was wearied from his journey, but he wasn't really weary. It looked like he was tempted. It seemed like he was being tempted, but he wasn't really being tempted. Let's take it one more step. It looked like he was suffering on the cross, but he really wasn't human, and he really wasn't suffering on the cross. Right? This teaching got a little bit of popularity. It started to snowball, and the leaders in the early church stood up and said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus is not Superman walking around. Jesus is the eternal creating word. Finish the rest of John 1, who took on flesh. He is God who became man without ceasing to be God. And I know that makes no sense in your brain or mine. It's a miracle. And the Bible doesn't explain it. It just presents it to you and expects you to believe it. Right? He's God who became truly human without ceasing to be truly God. And he, as a human being, got tired. And he was thirsty. And he was hungry. And he understood what it meant to suffer. It wasn't just a, a, a mirage. It wasn't just sort of a, a, a show for our benefit. It was real. The Word became flesh. He knew what it was to suffer. And at the end of his life, he wasn't just hungry, thirsty, tired. He suffered on the cross for our sins. God become man. And it's a great mystery. It's the mystery of the incarnation. And I just don't want you to pass it before we get into this discussion when you see Jesus stopping at a well to talk to this woman and he's weary and he's thirsty and he's hungry. Jesus knows suffering. You've suffered in your life. Jesus can relate to that. He's not just some distant deity who has an abstract idea of suffering. He actually knows what it's like to be tired or hungry or thirsty or hurt. He suffered. And he's at this well. And the woman comes out and they start to talk. 
I think the best way to approach the conversation is to start at the end and then think backwards. Sometimes Bible studies, sermons, books, they get into this back and forth. Why did he say that? Why did she say that? What did he mean? What did she mean? The clearest part of the whole passage comes at the very end. If you're just looking at John 4, it's verse 26. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says to her, the one who speaks to you is him. I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. That's what the whole conversation builds towards. And we're going to start with that as, as a big idea, and then we're going to think through the rest of it and ask ourselves this question. What does John want us to know about the Messiah? That's where it all builds up to. In this conversation, what does John, as he writes this story, what does he want us to know about the Messiah? Number one, the Messiah came for all peoples. And there's an S on the end of peoples intentionally. He came for all of the different groups of peoples, all the nationalities. He was not just coming to save the Jews. He was coming for all the different peoples, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and everyone and everything in between. He came for all of these peoples. Now, look, that doesn't stop or, or prevent us from saying the gospel is an exclusive message. Sometimes you, you hear pastors talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. What they mean is Jesus is the only way that a person can be saved. There's no salvation outside of Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We believe that. I believe that. That's what you're going to hear preached and taught in our church. There is only one way for people to be saved. It's exclusive. And I know that people hate that, but that's what it is. It's exclusive. There's also an inclusive aspect to the gospel. And the inclusive aspect is that Jesus came for all of the different peoples. Right? You sang this when you were a kid in, in children's school. And you sang about Jesus loving the little children. All of them. The red ones. The yellow ones. The black ones. The white ones. All of them. He cares for all of them. He came for all of the peoples. Including worthless, half-breed Samaritans. There's hints of this in the Old Testament. Hints. God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing for all the families of the earth. Not just your family, all the families. And we read about people like Rahab, who leaves Jericho and joins Israel. We read about Ruth, who leaves Moab and joins Israel. We, we read about Naaman, the Syrian, who becomes a follower of Yahweh. We get these hints Right? We see Jonah sent to preach to the people in Nineveh. There's hints. But in the New, the new Testament, the New Covenant, there's a shift. In the Old, it was sort of like Israel was waiting for the nations to come. In the New, God is sending us out to the nations, to the peoples. And the first one who really did this wasn't Jonah. Trust me, Jonah is not the example you want to follow. The first one who really did this is Jesus. He left his home in heaven, and he joined us here, and he became one of us to such a degree that he knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty and tired, and he came to people who were very different than him, and he came to seek them and to save them. He's the first missionary. He leaves his home, and he takes good news to people who needed to hear it. Right? This is why you and I want to live as missionary peoples. It's why we want to give of our money sacrificially. It's why we want to send teams out. It's why we want God to call out career, full-time, permanent missionaries from our church. 
Jesus did that for us. He left home and he came to save us. And then he sent us out as missionary peoples. Go make disciples of all the nations. This story reminds us Jesus, the Messiah, came for all the peoples. Secondly, he came for ignorant people. Ignorant people. We have a saying in our house. And the saying goes like this. You don't know what you don't know. And our kids hear that and they don't, most of them, most of the time don't get it yet. You don't know what you don't know. But it's our uh, quasi-polite, a little bit passive-aggressive way of saying to someone, you're ignorant about things. Not only do you not know some things, you don't even know that you don't know them. Right? You're doubly in the dark. You don't know what you don't know. You see that in Nicodemus who comes to Jesus and he says, hey, we know this about you. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And you can tell from his response, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't get it. Here's this woman from Samaria and she crosses paths with Jesus at the well and he asks for a drink and this conversation goes back and forth. She doesn't know what she doesn't know. She's ignorant. So many times you and I are like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. We come to God and we want to come with all the things that we know. Can I just tell you that's a bad way to come to God? That's a bad way to approach Jesus. That's a bad way to come and be a student of God's word. Ask any teacher in the room. If their students think they already know the material, you're not going to get through to them. They think they already know it all. You might as well be banging your head against a wall. But so often we come to God and we want to come to God and say, well, I know this. I mean, I know God would never fill in the blank. You're not ready to listen to the scriptures. You've already decided. You already know. I saw a video this week. Somebody was talking on this video. Someone shared it online. And the person on the video was talking about gender, something our society is very confused about. The person on the video said, we used to think gender was fixed and binary, meaning there's two options, male, female, and you are what you are. We used to think that. But now we know, fill in the blank. That's sort of a picture of us and our folly and our arrogance. Coming to God who has been gracious enough to reveal himself to us in, in his word. And rather than coming humbly and saying, God, please teach me what is true. We come with all these preconceived ideas and thoughts and everything. And all we want to talk about is what we know. I know this. We think we're experts on everything. Right? We're know-it-alls. And social media makes it worse. Because we can all get on social media and prove to the world that we don't know what we don't even know. But we've got this platform where we can get on and we can tell everybody all these things that we know. Right? Nicodemus came to Jesus. He, he thought he knew it all. The Samaritan woman talking with Jesus, she thinks she knows how it's all going to work. Here's some good news for you. 
Jesus came, the Messiah came, the Christ came for people who are ignorant. For people who don't even know what they don't know. And the good news is this. He didn't come to shame us. He didn't come to just straighten us out necessarily. He came to save us from our own ignorance. John has described this already, right? As he's talked about light and darkness. Left to ourselves, we're in the dark. We're lost. We don't know which way to go. We don't know up from down. We need a word from God. Jesus, the Messiah, came for ignorant people. Thirdly, he came for sinful people. Sinful people. Verse 6, Jesus is at the well. It's about the sixth hour. It's about noon, and the woman comes out to draw water. We don't have to go draw water. It's a very common thing at this point in history, in this part of the world. It's a very common thing in many parts of the world even today. Culture at this time and this place said that drawing water was typically women's work. You see that in the Old Testament. You see it here in the New. And typically, you would go do that early in the morning. You need water. Think about how many times during the day you need water. You got to start the day with water. We're going to go out early. It's very hot where these people live. We're going to go out early before the sun comes up. We're going to do it as a group so that there's safety in numbers, right? All of the women are going to go out. We're going to discuss things. We're going to talk about our kids. We're going to talk about our families. We're going to talk about our husbands. We're going to talk about the weather, all the things ladies like to talk about, whatever you all like to talk about. We're going to talk about that stuff. And this woman comes alone at noon. And let's just be honest. John doesn't tell us why. Maybe her alarm didn't go off. That happens to you. I set my iPhone alarm. I don't know what happened. That's the worst excuse in the world. Alarms work. Just turn them on. I don't think her alarm went bad. I don't think the rooster forgot to crow that morning or however she did it. She's coming later, most of us think and have been taught, because she wants to avoid the other ladies. Maybe she doesn't want to be made fun of. She doesn't want to be teased. She knows who she is. She knows how many men she's recycled and gone through. She doesn't want to have the sideways glances. She doesn't want to hear the comments. So she comes alone. She comes at noon. She comes to the well knowing she walks by herself every day that she's a sinner. It's just a built-in reminder into her schedule. I'm going to go out by myself because I don't want these people to remind me how terrible I am. But the very act of going out by yourself reminds you how terrible you are. So here she is walking out, this sinful woman. Jesus encounters her, and I just want you to understand, Jesus doesn't need her to volunteer the information about the husbands, right? He doesn't inquire about that. She doesn't just spout it off. He just knows it. He knows everything about this woman without her confessing it. He knows all her deepest, darkest secrets. She would hope for a little anonymity with a stranger. Jesus knows her perfectly. Jesus knows you perfectly. Jesus knows you better than any person in your life. Think of 
whoever knows you the best, maybe a best friend or a spouse or a parent or a child, Jesus knows you better than that. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus knows things about you that you don't even realize, that you haven't even processed. He knows you, and he knows this woman. There is absolutely no sin in your life that catches Jesus off guard. He knows exactly how bad it is in your heart and mind. And he came for people who are sinful. Sometimes people will say, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus can forgive me. I don't know if, if he knows how bad I am. I don't know if, if what I've done can be forgiven. Like, What an offensive thing to say to Jesus. You may think you're bad. Jesus knows how bad you really are. It's not going to surprise him. It's not going to catch him off guard. And this story is reminding us he came for people like that. He knew this woman. He knew all her deep, dark secrets, all the things she was ashamed of in life. And the text says he had to go this way. He had to talk with this woman. He had to tell this lady that he was the Christ. I don't know why you're here this morning. Habit, routine, looking for something. But if the idea that Jesus knows you as a sinner and came to save you anyway doesn't move you on some emotional level, I'm not saying tears or you know, outward just breakdown, but if it doesn't move you on some level, I don't think you understand sin like the Bible talks about sin. This is what Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. If you read this point, this truth, the Messiah came for sinful people, and all you can muster up is a, duh, of course. How obvious is that? Why else would he come? If that doesn't move you on any level, I don't think you think rightly about sin. And it's affecting the way that you think about Jesus. A Puritan Thomas Watson said the same thing like this, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And the problem for some of you is you fill in that blank, the Messiah came for sinful people, and you just fill it in, and you just move on. There's no emotional connection with that truth at all. The reason is you don't see sin as bitter. Why in the world would Jesus be sweet to you? You don't understand the horror of your sin. Why in the world would it be good news that Jesus came for sinful people? Maybe part of the problem is that you've come to God, you've come to church this morning thinking that you know certain things. And rather than coming saying all the things you know, you need to listen to the Word of God as it says, you are a fallen sinner. You love the darkness more than the light. Left to yourself, you run away from the light. You don't see this as good news, as gospel news. You don't see this as sweet news because you don't see sin as bitter. Number four. The Messiah came for unfulfilled people. This is a woman looking for something. We don't know what she's looking for. Maybe it's validation, value, happiness, fulfillment, contentment, security. She's looking for something, and she, in her life, has been looking in men. She's recycled through multiple men, and she has one now that's not even her husband, and Jesus exposes it. And what Jesus is really saying to this woman is, 
you're kind of like Solomon chasing the wind. You're looking for fulfillment in a place that you're never going to find it. You might as well be out in the oil patch chasing the West Texas wind. Good luck. In the end, you're just going to look like a fool. Right? Solomon tried it. He got out there in the field. He started chasing the wind. He chased women. He chased money. He chased education. He tra- chased fun. He chased uh, rest and relaxation and, and pleasure. He chased all of it. And in the end, he says, you know, I'm just like an, an idiot out there trying to catch the wind. Doesn't work. The prophet Jeremiah said the same thing with a different image. Rather than chasing the wind, he talked about cisterns and he said this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils, two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You had living water. You had the source itself. And you cashed it in for a hole in the ground and all the water's going to do when you pour it in there is seep away. It's going to leak out. It's not going to stay. It's not going to work. You might as well be chasing the wind. I think this is the passage Jesus had in mind when he says to the woman, I can give you living water. You've been pouring water into this broken cistern all your life. And it just keeps coming up empty. I'm not talking about a cistern that will hold water. I'm talking about the source of the water itself. Look what Jesus says. John chapter 4 verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Remember, she's thinking buckets and wells. Jesus is talking about living water, a whole different plane of conversation. You drink this water, you're going to be thirsty. If you drink the water that I will give you, you will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You don't just get access to the well. The well takes up residence inside of you. God comes to be with you. You get God. You can take your broken cistern or you can have the source itself. Where are you looking for fulfillment and validation, for value, for security, for meaning, for purpose? This woman was looking in broken cisterns and Jesus offered her living water. Last thought is this. The Messiah came to create worshipers. Worshippers. It's the capstone to everything in this conversation. He came for all peoples. He came for ignorant people, sinful people, unfulfilled people. Why? To what end did he come for these people? The answer is at the end of the conversation. Verse 21. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She's asked this question about where, do we, where should we go to church? Where should we worship? Here, here. Who's right? Who's wrong? Where do we go? Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and it's now here when true worshipers, 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking, circle the word seeking, He is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I just want to point out to you that in the Old Testament and the New, the Bible could not be more clear that left to ourselves, we do not seek God. The book of Psalms says it twice. Psalm 14 and 53. They're almost word for word identical. Both of them say, the Lord looks down and there is no one righteous, no one seeking God. No one seeks God on their own. And the Apostle Paul quotes those Psalms in Romans 3. And he says, there is no one righteous, not a single person. No one is seeking God. God. That's a bad situation. For the Lord to look down on a bunch of unfulfilled, ignorant, sinful people and to see that none of them are seeking Him. And that one word in verse 23 is such good news. It's such gospel news. We are not seeking God. He's seeking us. He came to find us. Jesus is proof of that. He's seeking us. Seeking doesn't mean like God's on this treasure hunt. He's looking for the folks who already love him. There are none of those folks. None righteous. Not one. All ignorant. All sinful. All unfulfilled. All trying to drink from broken cisterns. And God in his grace and his mercy sends Jesus, the word, to seek us. To save us to save us from being unfulfilled, to save us from our ignorance, to save us from our sins. Jesus looks at this woman. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray.